Welcome to another Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. I created the show with the intention of empowering others to help and love themselves. Aside from weekly skin tips, you will hear me spotlight extraordinary souls from around the world who are making a difference by helping people in their own way. Together, we can all make a difference, and it starts with love, love from the hip. Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung were considered to be the founding fathers of psychoanalytical psychology and shared similar as well as different theories when it came to the concept of self. Austrian doctor Sigmund Freud believed the self to have three distinct layers, divided among the conscious, preconscious, and unconscious, later referred to as the id, ego, and superego. Freud believed it is our unconscious self or the id which has the most influence over our personalities, which he believed to be driven by our libido and aggression, while the ego or the conscious self has the large task of controlling the constant pressures of the unconscious self, and the superego mediates our behavior, balancing the impulses of both the id and ego. Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung, like Freud, considered self to be the core of our personality as well as having both conscious and unconscious aspects. Unlike Freud, however, Jung believed also in the collective unconscious, which refers to the idea that a segment of our deepest unconscious mind is genetically inherited and is not shaped by personal experience. Also, contrary to Freud's belief of the conscious mind suppressing our desires, Jung believed the conscious mind actually works constructively on our emotions and that the unconscious mind is influenced by our lived experiences. According to Jung, the self denotes the unification of consciousness and unconsciousness in a person, representing the psyche as a whole. And when we are born, every individual has an original sense of self or wholeness. We then go on to develop a separate ego consciousness to help us feel a sense of belonging or connectedness. Jung believed that after our egos were differentiated and we became anchored in the external world through human experience, it was then our task in our second half of life to return or rediscover ourself. He called this process individuation. And he described it as the conscious coming to terms with one's own inner center or self, which generally begins with a wounding of the personality. And it is through the self's guidance of archetypal images, which help to bring the fragmented pieces of the self back together into totality. Jung believed the archetypes to exist in the collective unconscious and function primarily to organize how we experience certain things. While Jung suggested that the number of existing archetypes was not fixed, the four main archetypes he emphasized include the persona, the shadow, the animus, and the self. The persona, which literally means mask in Latin, is how we present ourselves to the world. It represents all of the social masks we wear among various groups and situations. While this archetype allows us to fit in, people can easily lose sight of themselves. The shadow is an archetype that consists of sex and life instincts and is typically composed of repressed ideas, desires, and shortcomings. This archetype is often described as the darker side of our psyche and contains all of the things that are unacceptable, not only in society, but also to one's morals. The anima is the feminine image or aspect in the male psyche, and the animus is the male image or aspect in the female psyche. This archetype represents true self rather than the image we present to others, and it serves as our primary source of communication with the collective consciousness. This archetype is based upon the notions of how gender should behave. The self is an archetype representing the unification of unconsciousness and consciousness of an individual. Young believed achieving a sense of cohesive self to be the ultimate goal for an individual. While Western psychology emphasizes strengthening the concept of self, many Eastern philosophies reject it. Buddhist belief is that the self is delusional and attached to suffering. In fact, the second noble truth tells us that because we believe we are a permanent and unchanging self, We fall into clinging and craving, jealousy and hate, and all the other poisons that cause unhappiness. 
Essentially, in Buddhism, to study the self is to forget the self, and the eternal goal is to reach nirvana, a state of non-self. However, in the journey to non-self, which requires renouncing worldly things, particularly those that are attractive because of egoism and desires, one could, one could definitely argue, this is also the journey to one's true self, or as Jung said, one's unified self. This self-realization drops attachments and expectations. It brings an interconnectedness and offers a healthy self-relationship with all the loving attributes of self-acceptance, self-worth, and self-love, which otherwise are suppressed by outside external forces and or intrinsic genetic factors. Perhaps it's not so much releasing attachment to self as it is releasing attachment to a false sense of self. Today on Love from the Hip, it is my great pleasure to have Mark B. Borg Jr. once again on my show. Mark is a community psychologist and psychoanalyst, author and founding partner of the Community Consulting Group. Mark will share wisdom on how to enhance the most vital relationship in everybody's life, our relationship with ourselves. From his latest book, Making Your Crazy Work for You, From Trauma and Isolation to Self-Acceptance and Love. So stick around. We'll be right back. The passing of our loved ones always proves to be very challenging, but can be met with ease when working with someone who can hold space, compassion, and especially someone who works across the veil. Allow Sakura Sutter, multidimensional channeler and intuitive medium, to be your spiritual guide with the other side. No matter if you choose to communicate with your transitioned loved ones to help you with the grieving process, or connect with spiritual, galactic, and other light beings to explore and dive in more on your spiritual path, Sakura can assist you. Not only does Sakura channel insightful messages, but she also incorporates her metaphysical tools to help you move through blocks and unprocessed emotions and feelings, providing you with a closure, relief, and new mindset to move forward. So don't hesitate to take your first step towards healing so you can start living your life once again. Remote sessions available. Contact Sakura at sakurasutter.com. That's S-A-K-U-R-A-S-U-T-T-E-R.com. Taking care of your body's largest organ can be difficult, but not for Astera Skincare Mist. This topical skin spray supports your skin's own natural healing defenses. Astera Skincare Mist is a light misting spray, free of parabens, alcohol, toxins, and fragrance. This all-natural topical skin spray will take the woe out of your skincare worries without clogging your pores. Irritation, inflammation, redness, post-procedure sensitivities? No problem. With Astera Skincare Mist, you can continue about your day without the skin dismay. Acne, rosacea, psoriasis, sunburns, rashes, and fungus? Don't let these skin concerns inconvenience you. Instead, let Astera Skincare Mist allow you to be happy in the skin you're in. Available at Sakura Skin and Mind. Learn more at esteracare.com. That's E-S-T-H-E-R-A care.com. Is your tween starting to experience a change in their skin? Want to get them on an easy at-home routine and have good skin hygiene? Allow Sakura Skin in Mind to help your tween out. This brief, deep cleansing and educational 35-minute facial is just enough to get your tween, ages 10 to 12 years old, started off in the right direction. Sakura Skin in Mind uses the latest in the clinical skincare industry to care for your tween the right way. Sakura Skin in Mind, treating skin out there with an ounce of treatment and a pound of protection. Call 206-730-7429 or go to sakuraskinandmind.com. Welcome back to Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe and share my podcast, Love from the Hip, that's HYP, anywhere you can find podcasts. It is my great pleasure to have Mark B. Borg Jr. back on my show. Mark is a community psychologist and psychoanalyst author, and founding partner of the Community Consulting Group. Hey, Mark, thanks for joining me again today. I am so happy to be here. <laughs> really nice to see you again. Yeah, <laughs> you too. And all the way from New York. Yep, yep. New York City, downtown, 26th and Broadway is where I am right this second. Wow, <laughs> right in the heart of it. Yep. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> So I have to ask you, what was the catalyst for writing your new book? I mean, based on the title, Making Crazy Work for You, From Trauma and Isolation to Self-Acceptance and Love, 
it's pretty fitting for our time during this pandemic. Well, it's interesting, right? Because we this is the third in a series of books about a topic that we call irrelationship. And irrelationship is a psychological defense system against experiencing the very things we think we want from love, intimacy, uh, empathy, vulnerability, and emotional investment. So Dr. Grant Brenner, Danny Barry, and I got together in 2010, riffing on the subject, a subject that we at that time were calling human antidepressant the kind of compulsive caretaking that we saw in a lot of our clients. And we saw it sort of in an epidemic level in our society. We started thinking that this human antidepressant thing perhaps wasn't so much people were doing to other people compulsively caretaking them, but maybe it was more something they were doing with other people. So we started thinking about a dynamic that two people created together as a psychological defense against these scary aspects of love. Um, so at first, when especially Grant Brenner, uh, our psychiatrist, uh, started talking about the possibility of self irrelationship, I was like, "What do you talk? How do you have a self irrelationship in a co-created psychological defense system?" But as we went along and we riffed more on the tree of Freud than Jung, uh, mm-hmm. though we respect both, um, we went down the f- tree of uh, Freud and we found Harry Stack Sullivan and Eric Fromm. These were interpersonal psychoanalysts who started talking about trauma. And the creation of splits in the self, splits in the sense of self that come from trauma. Once we started going down this tree, and it is actually our institute, the William Allison White Institute, that, that really talks a lot and theorizes about a kind of uh, psychoanalysis that is about relationships and about the way in which our culture influences us, like you were talking about Jung. And um, we started to see if it's true that there are these deep, splits in the self, then a self can have all these kind of multiple relationship with self based on the multiplicity of self experience. Once we started thinking about that, we started thinking much more deeply about the relationship that the various uh, selves or various types of self experience related to each other internally inside the mind and how these then influence obviously the behavior we have with other people. But we took this dramatic uh, turn, a really an, a 180 turn to come back to the self, to, to start really exploring the relationship that a self has with us. Not just a self, that a self has with multiple experiences of self. And I was finally sold on the idea of self-experience and we just went at it. And that's what, <laughs> and, the, and this book is the result of that. So <laughs> now I have to go back when you say a split in self, this is the self irrelationship, correct? Right. And so does this come about because we are protecting ourselves or we have that defensive self because of the traumas and things we've gone through? We specifically talk about a type of trauma that comes from ineffective care from the early environment. And we use the word environment uh, basically synonymous. It's synonymous with what we would think of as parental care or whoever the primary guardian is from the earliest experiences. And so, you know, a, a person a developing human and probably every animal on planet earth and elsewhere, you know, needs to believe, needs to experience a certain sense of safety in order to survive. When that safety is threatened, it is traumatic. And what the human we've seen does when that sense of safety is threatened or non-existent, that human developing human will turn the tables on care Mm -hmm. and we'll go through all kinds of contortions and what we call song and dance routines to Either one, get the caretaking environment to literally and actually take care, or two, turn the tables on the environment, i.e. parent, so that they can at least believe that there is care out there and they can survive long enough with a sort of pseudo care to get to a place survive because again it's traumatic for a developing person to not have effective care right right so can we also then kind of build this false environment of what we believe is happening based on our past experiences and our memories with our caretakers that's that's really that's that's incredible insight because that's that's really we don't necessarily put it in exactly that language but yes i mean we are working very hard to to at least at least believe that we are recreating the environment through our care of the environment, which we think of, we call them song and dance routines because what happens is the developing person starts to develop routines in order to get the environment to behave in caretaking or at least minimally 
caretaking ways. And so, yes, you know, there is this, there can even be a grandiosity in the sense of needing to change the environment to meet our needs, mm-hmm. our, our survival needs. And that, again, that's why this book really focuses on uh, trauma, the trauma of having to recreate the environment to care for at least your minimal survival, our minimal survival needs. Okay. And this is the third book of your series, correct? Yes. Yes. And so, and this book is also full of examples, true scenarios. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. 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 All the names are changed to protect the individuals, but yes. Okay. Yeah. And so you say making your crazy, how do you define our crazy? Crazy. What is that? Okay, so we think that, I believe that, have seen that over, you know, all the years, because we've been working on this theory since 2010 together, the three of us. Um, we believe that crazy is synonymous for what exists at the center of this reversal of caretaking, which is a state of complete isolation. And because we believe that human beings need each other, we are absolutely dependent on one another psychologically, physically, emotionally, you could say spiritually. I mean, we are so completely dependent upon each other that when we isolate ourselves from each other, there we, we, we lock ourselves in with a deep and desperate sense of loneliness that for a human being is the same as being crazy. There is a reason why solitary confinement is the most cruel of human punishments. And in a way, in this caretaking operation, since it operates with all care going outward, what we do is we inadvertently, and I would say accidentally, defend ourselves from allowing other people to care for us. We defend ourselves, we protect ourselves inadvertently for allowing other people to contribute to us. And that is crazy making because it, it, it creates and then maintains a state of uh, ongoing isolation. And, and the worst part of it is it's a state of isolation that because it's operating as a psychological defense against the anxiety of not surviving, the trauma of not surviving, because it's a psychological defense, we don't know it's there. Hmm. So it's it, you can also have that appear, that isolation, even when you're in a relationship. Is that correct? In fact, that's how we discovered it, because uh-huh. we kept hearing stories. I'm a couple therapist as well. Yeah. And so I kept hearing story after story after story of couples who were sleeping in the same bed with their partner for 20 years, for 30 years. I have a couple I've been seeing who've been married for 60 years and in desperate, horrible isolation. Isolation that was so nonsensical to them, they couldn't imagine that they were protecting themselves from being close to the person they were sleeping with. Hmm. That's pretty incredible. So why would we want to address then our self-irrelationship? I don't think we do. Who wants to address it? You know, like most, (laughs) like, no, who wants to address it? Like, I think it's similar to people who wind up eventually, you know, hitting some kind of a rock bottom on an addictive behavior. I don't think any addict like consciously says, oh, I think today is the day that I want to get sober. I think you know, it's more like the same kind of thing. It's like, bam, I hit a bottom. Bam, I woke up and I was desperate. I didn't even want to live. I'm so lonely. I'm so disconnected. I've been sleeping with this beautiful person for you know 15 years and I don't know them and they don't know me and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. So I think it's when we start feeling that terrible sense of missing our partner. That's how I first started getting it. I started hearing couples coming to me who kind of liked each other and they were kind of okay people and they were, you know, physically attracted to each other, blah, 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 but they couldn't connect and they didn't know why. Mm -hmm. And I started, you know, discovering, I started going on this journey to find out that the very things they thought they were giving to each other, they were giving in such a way that it actually protected them from accepting, taking in and making use of what the other person was offering. So it's really ironic, right? Right. You don't realize, maybe we don't realize that I'm giving like a fire hose, like, Right. Nothing's going to get into a fire hose. Right. Not nothing's getting in. Mm-hmm. And I found that I was literally I'm finding this like epidemic. I mean, I'm finding this. I see it in, uh, I, you know, I see it all over the place. You know, in fact, we, the three of us um, started to recreate this in our dynamic, the three of us. And, and the funny thing is I started a project prior to this with two other clinicians and I was so bad. I was so much in this irrelationship song and dance routine, human antidepressant stuff that I like basically caretaked them right out of the project. Uh-huh. I, I bombed the first version of this <laughs> by this time in this dynamic, in this right. crazy caretaking. Like one of the people in the project was um, like had been broken up with the same guy, like for the 10th time, the other guy wound up being somebody who had serious, serious addictive problems. And I'm like trying to use this project to like cure, rescue, save them, which is exactly what we're talking about. So you can't, you can't be the teacher without being the student first, right? 
I think that's, yeah, that's right. That's right. And when Grant and Danny and I have veered into that territory, we've literally had to use the tools that we write about in all three books to basically bring ourselves back from, you know, over the, over the cliff. Right. (laughs) So I, I think it's interesting that you keep using the word epidemic. And during the pandemic, I imagine yeah. that this issue uh, was significant because people were forced to be together, right? There was no escaping going to work and leaving the house and doing the social events that would give us room and yeah. independence from each other. So right. was that something that you also noticed? Is that oh, people I, just I, couldn't sure. stand being with each other because they also didn't yes. yeah, know who they yep. were? Yep. Okay. Yeah, and, and right, and and again, the caretaking I think was even more driven because I think parents were so worried about their children, and and partners were so willing about worried about each other, and the worry itself didn't all actually all result in help that was effective. In fact, a lot of time, what it did was it it started to create these dynamics where one person was kind of imposing help on the other person, not actually giving it. I I have a slogan. I worked four years in South Central LA after the civil unrest in 1992. I worked four years in a community empowerment project. And one of the things I came to realize was help on the terms of the helper and not the helpee is not necessarily help. Mm -hmm. And, And that's what I'm seeing a lot. I'm seeing a lot of imposed help, a lot of, you know, unrequested, a lot of, uh, you know, almost like tyrannical kinds of help have gone on during the pandemic. And and I have to say, I, I have been guilty of this because uh-huh. I have this like little, beautiful, wonderful 10 year old child who's, who's transitioning from uh, female to male. And like, I have been desperate to like, make sure that he's okay. Make sure he has a social life, make sure that he's yeah. like, you know, be able to have creative outlets. And I found myself like driving myself nuts trying to care for this kid. Like, a, like <laughs> not a, always listening to what he needs. Right. Like a forced martyrdom, would you say? Uh, kind of. Kind, yeah. Yes. I think that would be another. Uh, martyr is definitely a term that fits with this model. So yes. then how do you recommend? I mean, I imagine people, some people have actually found themselves more during this pandemic and others have actually mm-hmm. lost themselves more. I mean, how yeah. do you recommend people find themselves coming out of this pandemic, especially oh, yeah. those caretakers? Well, we have a whole process, you know, we have a whole like model of care, which we call the dream sequence. So it's discovering the thing like, like, you got to know it's there. Somehow you got to experience it. Usually we feel it, right? I feel the isolation. I feel the loneliness. It's driving me crazy. It doesn't make sense. So by the very process of making sense to it, we do those things. I have a funny rule for couples. I say, I only have two, two rules in, in couple therapy. One, keep the focus on yourself. Two, Refer to rule one. Like you've got to, <laughs> you've got, you, you've got to focus. You've got to find out what your part of the problem is, which brings us to the R. And I think the R is the gateway to breaking out of isolation because the R is rupture and repair. You know, you've got to, every single time that we wipe out in a relationship, every single time that we start trying to impose something on someone else, the other person goes, knock it off, dad. You know, it's an opportunity to take that rupture, to take that mistake, learn from it, and then repair in the relationship, actually finding out what really works. And now this third book includes a rupture in how we're treating ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And a repair that requires some degree of experimenting. And so that is, uh, you know, the D, the rupture is R, the E is empowerment. Empowerment means going out and finding things that actually work and fulfill and that we are actually willing to take in. A is alternatives. We find alternative ways of caring for ourselves. And M is a mutuality. And when it comes to splits in the self, what we mean by mutuality is getting those parts of ourselves into communication with each other to sort of integrate. It's very interesting that you started the the show today with Jung, who Mm -hmm. talks about integration, right? Right. And individuation. And he's about integrating opposites, right? Male, female, dark, light, shadow, light, you know, all of these things. So, I mean, there's, there's something that's not the model that we use, but it's very similar in that we talk about fractures and self that are split by dissociation. Dissociation Mm -hmm. is an extreme psychological defense against trauma. So it creates these splits. We're here to heal those splits. And that's really what this book is about. Okay. And I would I would imagine also this pandemic has caused more. I mean, it's caused more duality and more polarity. So it's made that split even bigger. (laughs) Well, it's yes. Yeah, exactly. 
it's also done is it's uh it's kind of caused a lot of us to turn back to those splits to turn to dissociation as a way of protecting ourselves from an anxiety that is now much more chronic Mm, yeah absolutely all right well with that we're going to take a break here but everyone stay tuned for the weekly skinny up next On this Weekly Skinny, I would like to talk about DHT, or dihydrotestosterone. Dihydrotestosterone is a sex hormone created from testosterone in the body. It is critical to the development of the penis and prostate and plays a major role in the development of masculine characteristics influencing body hair, libido, muscle growth, and a deep voice. And depending on how much or how little your body is making can affect your skin, hair, and much more. Testosterone is converted into DHT thanks to an enzyme called 5-alpha reductase, or 5-AR, which is how DHT is made in the body. Roughly 10% of the free testosterone in one's body is typically converted into DHT. There can be, however, a 5-AR deficiency in males, which leads to low levels of DHT resulting in delayed puberty, incomplete development of sex organs, increased risk of prostate tumors, and changes in body fat distribution. An increase in the production of DHT, or high DHT, is much more common and is caused by an increased level of testosterone and an increase in 5-AR and can be due to stress, lack of exercise, an unhealthy lifestyle, and it can also be genetic. Although DHT is often associated with men because of the male growth hormone, women have it as well, and high levels of DHT can cause negative effects for both men and women. In women, high levels of DHT can cause male-like facial hair growth, depression, and loss of scalp hair. Men who have high levels of DHT tend to have a receding hairline, hair loss at the temples and crown, acne, aggression, sleep apnea, high red blood cell count, excessive sweating, a changed sex drive, an increased risk of high blood pressure, and coronary heart disease. High levels of DHT can also contribute to an enlarged prostate. Doctors often prescribe different DHT blockers or inhibitors to treat high DHT. But as with any medication, there is risk of side effects, which can include erectile dysfunction, rash, upwards to congestive heart failure. The herbal route can also be effective, which can include pygium bark, biotin, saw palmetto, pumpkin seed oil, and even caffeine, to name a few. Of course, practicing a healthier lifestyle can also help to reduce DHT levels naturally. If you think you might be suffering from high levels of DHT, be sure to consult your doctor or naturopathic doctor before beginning any sort of treatment. Is your tween starting to experience a change in their skin? Want to get them on an easy at-home routine and have good skin hygiene? Allow Sakura Skin in Mind to help your tween out. This brief, deep cleansing and educational 35-minute facial is just enough to get your tween, ages 10 to 12 years old, started off in the right direction. Sakura Skin in Mind uses the latest in the clinical skincare industry to care for your tween the right way. Sakura Skin in Mind, treating skin out there with an ounce of treatment and a pound of protection. Call 206-730-7429 or go to sakuraskinandmind.com. Peach fuzz is great if it's on a peach. Let Sakura Skin and Mind remove unsightly hair with dermaplaning. Although its primary purpose is to remove layers of dead skin, it's just one of the added benefits leaving your skin baby smooth, safe, effective, fast and affordable. What a concept! Sakura Skin and Mind wants you to look your very best, and dermaplaning is just one tool in their chest. Find out about dermaplaning at sakuraskinandmind.com. S A K U R A, skinandmind.com. We bring out the healthy skin and healthy way of thinking you didn't know you had. Welcome back to Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. Today, I have the pleasure of having Mark B. Borg Jr. back on my show. Mark is a community psychologist and psychoanalyst, author, and founding partner of the Community Consulting Group. So, Mark, before the break, you were discussing the dream sequence. Now, is that a way to help us determine or identify our self-irrelationship? The the dream sequence actually takes us all the way through it. It it starts with discovery. It goes into repair. It helps us. 
find empowerment both in ourselves and our environment, which includes other people in our relationships. It helps us create alternative ways of being in relationship with the world and ourselves, it, which includes a deep level of acceptance for where we've been, where we are, what we're doing. And then finally, M, which is mutuality, it puts us into a very different kind of relationship. And mutuality in the third book's a little tricky, or maybe uh, to me, at first it, it was, uh, yeah, it was kind of a, almost like an oxymoron, you know, like I'm in mutuality, I'm in self-mutuality, but indeed, because this whole process of a dream sequence is about tackling and working, addressing, tackling, working through old traumas of caretaking from our earliest environments, mutuality doesn't just include allowing ourselves to be in a more reciprocal relationship with the world. It allows us to start to repair the splits in ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that's a very confusing but i think ultimately you know pretty exciting use of the term mutuality yeah mutual relationship with ourselves right absolutely which is really important and would you yeah. would you say that being is it important to have a good self-relationship before we can have successful relationships outside of us See, I, I know that's the old myth, and you and I have had this discussion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, are, we are both of the school, I think, that or believe that the ultimate school of self and other is relationship. I mean, that's, that's how we're born. That's how we form our very sense of self and self-other. So I believe that, you know, the whole idea of, like, take a break, go to the mountain, sit cross-legged, <laughs> meditate for four years you got to form this deep you know interpersonal relationship with yourself like again another oxymoron no <laughs> i don't believe that i right. believe that every single relationship is a teaching opportunity i believe that every single relationship is an opportunity for us to get to know other people and ourselves our relationship with the world better so i am all for the experimental model of relationship which is that every single one of them becomes an incredible not only a teacher about who we are who other people are in the in in our world but also about who we are you know, right. how we relate, how we're growing and what we're seeing, what we're attracting, what's being reflected back to us. All this stuff to me, as, as you can tell by my intensity of the, about this, I'm thrilled. I'm so excited. Yeah. And then, like you said earlier, I mean, it gives us a way of knowing if we have a self-irrelationship, even with our partner. Right. That's right. That's right. We're reflecting again, each other. Yep. And, the, and look, the, the telltale sign of self-irrelationship is I am not accepting anything from my world. I am not. I, it's all going out. It's all going out. The mm. most strange twist on uh, on ill health and isolation is that the more you care for the world, the more you are a, a fire hose spraying care all over the place, the less likely it is that you're going to allow anybody else to contribute to you. The problem with not accepting contributions from other people is that other people need to know that what they have to give is valuable. Right. If I don't take anything you have to give, my, the message I am unintentionally communicating to you is you've got nothing good to give. Right. So it's not good. So know? it's kind of, yeah, like you said, it's kind of, you know, ironic. You're not taking yeah. or accepting because you're probably not feeling worthy. And right. at the same time, you're causing the other person to feel lack of self-worth as well. Exactly. Because basically, if I don't take what you have to give, I, the message is, is is very clear. It's like you are not valuable. And, you know, it starts with what you have to give is invaluable. But I think it's a very short little step to then you are not valuable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you can see why people then wind up in a relationship protecting themselves from each other even more powerfully. Right. Now, aside from the caretaker, though, as far as those splits being developed during that time in our lives, would you say a lot of it's also genetic? I think so. I mean, I think that again, but that that's, I do believe that. I just think it's really tricky because our, our, right. our buddy Grant Brenner, Dr. Grant Brenner told me a joke once he said, you know, he said, actually, um, he said, you know, I've been to lots and lots and lots of psychoanalysis to be a psychoanalyst. You have to be in years of psychoanalysis. He said, I finally, finally stopped blaming my parents. He said, now I blame my grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it does keep you in that victim role then, right? Yeah, to say so, it's so genetic. That's why, I'm a little, mm -hmm. that's why I'm a little careful about the genetic thing because it's not, I, I totally agree. I just think there's something about, you know, like the buck stops here that irrelationship, the book, 
relationship sanity, which you and I talked about before. And then this book, they are all about the power of taking responsibility mm. to our contribution to the problem. It's not victim blaming. It's not self-criticism. It's like, oh my God, I am so strong when I know what I contribute to what's wrong. Right. I mean, Empowering. And, you know, we, we, yeah, it's totally empowering. I mean, you can look, it's not just what's wrong. You get to also contribute, take a, a responsibility for what's right. Right. But, <laughs> but that's not so hard, right? That's not that's not such a hard task. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so can we talk about your 40-20-40? 40 basically is our way of thinking about and conceptualizing contributions made to the world and basically to us. We ask our reader to think about an imaginary line between us and the world that stops at about 50. And we imagine that we developed this actually in couple therapy, thinking about couples where there was often a giver and a taker. And we asked the giver to stop giving like a fire hose, to back up, to back, back, back up to 40. Mm-hmm. And then we asked the taker to come forward, come, 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 come forward to about 40. Now, this was going to be very difficult for the giver to back up and for the taker to come forward. But in the when each one of them came 40 and 40 into the middle of this is about contribution, giving and taking, then there was this 20 in the middle and the 20 in the middle constituted an actual reciprocity. So that's what we, that's how we developed this model and thinking about couples and couples therapy and accepting, uh, giving and accepting love, care, affection, interest, attention, all of these things that we're that we've now recreated this model to include the relationship that we have with the world. Right. Mm -hmm. We're asking because, again, a compulsive caretaker is going to be caretaking compulsively and chronically all over the place. So we're asking the reader to think about backing up, like backing up, start thinking about all these different places and ways that the world can contribute to us. Mm -hmm. And that's why this 40, 20, 40 thing is about creating and then maintaining a state of give and take, a state of reciprocity, which we actually define in our second book as relationship sanity, a balance <laughs> of giving and taking, and so loving the, and being loved. So the 40-20-40 also applies to yourself, right? The give and take mm-hmm. of yourself? That's right. To be able to allow yourself to bring forth these various characteristics. It's interesting, you know, if you were thinking in Jungian terms, you'd be thinking in terms of not a persona, but a variety of personae, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like this this persona and that persona and that persona and this deeper self and that, you know, the mask and then the deeper self and putting each one of our experiences of self in relationship to each other to create ultimately an integration in our experience and sense of self. So on average, most couple, couples were receptive to this process. Were there any couples that weren't? Oh, any yeah. Reason no, why? No, no. Nobody was immediately receptive because it's so hard. We don't right. think this because this <laughs> requires us to drop our guard, right? This requires us. The whole point of discovery is to realize I am contributing to what I thought was all you. you know? right. I thought it was you. I thought you were withholding. I thought you were cold. I thought you were, you know, I thought you were uh, cutting me off from having a sexual relation and all this kind of stuff. I was convinced that the reason why I was lonely is because you were hurting me. Hmm. So asking couples to consider that the very thing they thought was their best asset, their best quality, which was their care of the other, was actually the problem was a freaking hard sell, (laughs) an incredibly hard sell. Again, like an alcoholic who comes into treatment because they wiped out time and time again, that these are the original couples. The original couples were the ones that were so in so much pain. They were so terrified. They thought if they talked about their difficulties in their relationship, they would lose the marriage. I mean, they just, you know, this was like really, really low bottom irrelationship stuff in the beginning. Mm. And now did you find that at like longer marriages and longer relationships that it was more prevalent? Not necessarily, you know, because again, because loneliness is so extreme. Some people, especially it's interesting when you talk about genetics. I mean, so I'm not talking so much about genetics. I am family dynamics. So I think if you come from a family where you're used to being, uh, you know, really, um, uh, you know, congratulated for everything you do, for all your contributions and how cute you are and how funny and how smart and all these wonderful things. And then you come into a relationship where, where the response to that is being withheld. I think you can hit a bottom pretty quickly. Right. 
you know? So I, so, so it's, I think that, interestingly, I think that a lot of times the family dynamics that we bring into, um, into a, a, an intimate relationship have a strong influence on how much isolation we can tolerate. Mm-hmm. And I always hope that people don't tolerate isolation for very long because I believe isolation is traumatic. Right. Absolutely. As we've all noticed and seen during this time. Right. That's right. That's right. So how much does culture and religion play into those family dynamics? Oh, I think that, again, because every, see, I believe, I go so far as to believe that not only does everybody have a different culture, does everybody have a different religion. I'm talking about people in the same family because it's not that there are all these zillions of religions, say, and just pick one, right, Christianity, but it's more like it's our experience of culture. It's our experience of religion. It's what we do with it. The old psychoanalytic question was, the old Freudian question was, uh, what do you want? The new psychoanalytic question is, what's it for? So when you think about culture, when you think about religion, you think, what is it for? Do I experience religion as something caring and loving and affectionate that puts me in contact and and relationship with the world? Or do I use, that's the what's it for, right? I can use it to feel loved and cared for and part of the greater scheme of life. Or I use it to somehow protect myself from other people and elevate myself and get grandiose because my religion is better than yours. That's mm-hmm. another variation on that. Another one is um, I use it to, um, to as a measuring stick for how much I live up to these morals and these principles and these values. And then I shame myself and that goes to the Freudian superego. So the answer really is that, that um, I believe there are as many different cultures, religions, uh, politics, you, you name it. They all are influenced by this experience that we're talking about of how open are we to allowing the world to love and care for us. Mm-hmm. Yes, most definitely. Thanks for sharing that. And yeah. with that, we're going to take another break, but everyone stay tuned for more Love from the Hip. The passing of our loved ones always proves to be very challenging, but can be met with ease when working with someone who can hold space, compassion, and especially someone who works across the veil. Allow Sakura Sutter, multidimensional channeler and intuitive medium, to be your spiritual guide with the other side. No matter if you choose to communicate with your transitioned loved ones to help you with the grieving process, or connect with spiritual, galactic, and other light beings to explore and dive in more on your spiritual path, Sakura can assist you. Not only does Sakura channel insightful messages, but she also incorporates her metaphysical tools to help you move through blocks and unprocessed emotions and feelings, providing you with a closure, relief, and new mindset to move forward. So don't hesitate to take your first step towards healing so you can start living your life once again. Remote sessions available. Contact Sakura at sakurasutter.com. That's S-A-K-U-R-A-S-U-T-T-E-R. I want to take a minute and invite you on over to the Love Shack. It's a little old place where we get to get together, explore fresh perspectives, eavesdrop on juicy conversations, and uncover the mysteries that nobody talks about, but absolutely influences our relationships. And we're Tom and Stacey Bartley. We are the hosts of Love Shack Live, which airs every Thursday at 1 p.m. PST, 1150 KKNWAM. Yeah, come on over and join us. We look forward to connecting with you soon. A health crisis is one of the most challenging situations we will experience in our lifetime. It leaves us frightened, confused, and asking, why did this happen to me? Transformational coach Rory Reich experienced his healing crisis when the life he had so carefully constructed came crumbling down around him. The universe had offered him a challenge. He chose to accept it and to rediscover who he was before it was too late. In his book, Transform Yourself Through Disease, Rory shares his personal journey alongside eight practical steps to help those who are stuck realize their self-impairing beliefs and discover ways of transforming them so they can reclaim their health and create the life of their dreams. Don't let your health crisis define you. Take the next step and transform yourself today. For a free life coaching consultation, contact Rory at RoryReich.com. That's R-O-R-Y-R-E-I-C-H.com. Welcome back to Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. If you are just joining us, today I have the great pleasure of having Mark B. Borg Jr. back on my show. Mark is a community psychologist and psychoanalyst, author, and founding partner of the Community Consulting Group. So, Mark, we can treat our crazy, and we should also accept our crazy? Well, you know, I think that the reason why we can actually... (laughs) Maybe this is too strong a statement, but love 
are crazy is because our crazy is the warning signal. It's telling us about what we need. And what we need is each other. We need to go back and we need to repair these splits in self because the more dissociated we are from our experience and our history of ourselves through time, the less able we will be to make a prison break from the isolation that we call crazy. So crazy is like when you're driving through the desert and you see that gas station, you're like, I don't know, maybe not. Crazy is that blinking red light flashing saying, you better pull over, pal. You got to pull over and you got to, you know, you got to fill up. Right. Right. We can't fill ourselves up. There's a brilliant quote from the 12 step world that says, you know, that they call self-sufficiency a bone crushing juggernaut. (laughs) And I believe that I believe self-sufficiency is a bone crushing juggernaut. I I am of a school of thinking and I've been in this field since 1988. And what I've seen is, you know, we need each other. We need each other and we need each other and we need to be in touch with these various parts of ourselves in order to allow ourselves to really reach out and break out of self-sufficiency. And have that interconnectedness. Correct. Yeah. Yes. I love how you use the word crazy, too, because it makes us feel not so bad about ourselves, because I feel like there's so much out there that just makes everybody feel so bad about who they are and how they do things. So now when you're saying treat your crazy are you supposed to go back to your inner inner child traumas and address those? I mean, where do you start? I mean, the amazing thing I think about what we've discovered is that all of this crazy, so-called crazy, it plays out anyways. That's what happens. We believe in, again, back to the tree of Freud. I mean, for one of Freud's incredible contributions was this idea of repetition compulsion. And what he thought and believed what I see in couple therapy constantly, including today, uh, later and uh, earlier, and I'm sure in my next session, which happens in uh, nine minutes, um, <laughs> you know, it's like we repeat. Now, mm-hmm. Freud had a sort of less optimistic vision of why we repeat. Oh, we want to master the environment, this right. and that, you know, put ourselves a master in the ego principle, which is reality, which I think is all well and good. But I believe that we repeat in order to repair, mm-hmm. that we get to go back to the old family drama many times over, especially in close relationships, and we get to, to really heal from right. those old wounds. So no, you don't have to go in the nitty gritty of the actual trauma that occurred before you were even born and you, you know, when you were in, in utero, you yeah. get to repeat that trauma over and over and over again. And every time that there is a problem in a relationship, it is an opportunity to heal. It is an opportunity to do it somewhat differently, just a little bit differently every time. Actually, the process of rupture and repair is like calisthenics for relationship. Hmm. So you don't get stuck in the same relationship over and over and over again? Well, if you do, then, you know, I think you can then look at your crazy and try to take a different look at it and try to say that maybe the reason why you keep winding up repeating what feels like exactly the same relationship is because it has been so scary to consider the option, you know, that every time you rupture, instead of repairing, you rupture and then you just, you know, cross your fingers and hope that a few days will go by or whatever, and then you can go back and there's just a bigger and bigger and bigger elephant in the room. (laughs) So so it really, right. It really does require some conscious effort to repair. So many of us believe that, you know, we get into some blowout problem with our partner and that somehow time or pretending like it didn't happen or some very superficial band-aid approach to dealing with it is going to, you know, is going to actually heal us. It's not, we need some actual effort. And that goes back to the two rules that I said earlier, we got to focus on ourselves, what our contribution to the problem is. And then we've got to, Oh yeah. Focus on ourselves and (laughs) figure out what how we're not going to get any benefit from a relationship where it's all the other person's fault. That does nothing for us. Nothing. Mm -mm. It could tell us that we keep making bad choices. And that's not that, that again is the equivalent of maintaining our isolation. Yeah, absolutely. And then I would imagine each time you're revisiting, right? You're getting, you're gaining new perspective. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, So how has this book impacted you and your relationships as well as your working relationships with your fellow authors? (laughs) Well, you know, it's really, it's funny. You know, the last time I was on this show, I wrote a book, I had written a book called Don't Be a Mm, Bleep. Bad word. And that book was actually a book about some of my behavior in this trio with Danny and Grant that are my co-authors, because we just, I mean, we got so deep and we had come to so much 
we've done so much work together and we were actually applying the 40, 20, 40 in our relationships with each other, but we were just wiping out. We had so many dramatic differences in opinion of what should happen next and whether we wanted to keep going. And like, we really had to use our own tools. We had to use the very tools and especially in our first two books to be able to write this third book. So I, and I mean, and it's funny because my wife and I too have been using these principles and now we are writing a book about <laughs> conflict resolution that we originally were calling alternatives to divorce and medication. <laughs> <laughs> Which was my next question of where you hope to grow from here. Well, that that the growth really is in that book. We also, my wife and I, also do a peer supervision, um, a peer couple group every week that we've been doing for 13 years, and we love. Um, and so we've learned a lot about that. So we're taking all that into this next book, which I, now we don't know the title. The, the I think the publisher thinks that that title's too provocative, <laughs> but I like it. <laughs> not as provocative as the last one. <laughs> no, not. And they're the publisher of that book, so maybe maybe. Maybe we will convince them. (laughs) You never know. So, Mark, if people could have one takeaway today from your book, what would you want that to be? I think that the the real takeaway from the book is learn to love yourself. I mean, it is absolutely this is about self-love, you know, and that and, you know, because I I think that love is transformational. And I think that love is so transformational that it scares the holy hell out of us. So meaning that I'm walking into this loving relationship with this person or this self, me. And I know that if I allow myself to love and be loved fully, I will not be the same person in that relationship. And certainly not, you know, if I have to be out of that relationship that I was coming in. And while that sounds like this incredible promise, it's actually terrifying, right? (laughs) I'm not going to be me here anymore. I'm not going to be this moored, grounded, oriented version of myself. No, I'm not. Mm -hmm. I'm not. So I say, you know, loving ourselves is transformational, just like loving each other. That's Uh the message. Absolutely. And I'm so happy that you shared that. So how can my listeners learn more about you and your fellow co-authors and your your blog as well? Uh, We have two blogs on psychology today. One's called Irrelationship. The other one is called Relationship Sanity. Uh, Our publisher is Central Recovery Press. We have a website called irrelationship.com. And uh, I'm available. If you type, if you Google Mark B. Borg Jr., uh, you'll find me. And uh, I always respond when people reach out. Lovely. Well, I look forward to having you and your wife on my show next. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait. All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Great to see you. Yeah, you too. And thank you to Eric, my rock star producer, you the listener, KKNW, Timber Country, KBKW, and Cape Town Zone Radio. You can find me at sakurasutter.com. And tune in next week for another episode of the Conscious Coaching Hour with my co-hosts Brenda Reese and Rory Reich. Stay kind out there, stay true to you, and don't forget, make self-love contagious. Go ahead, I dare ya. The veil is a line between physical and non-physical realities, between spirit and matter. Listen in to Go Beyond the Veil every second Wednesday of each month from 2 to 3 p.m. In this jam-packed radio hour, hosts Sakura Sutter and Rory Reich interview folks who make a living crossing the veil and assisting others on their journey of healing and self-discovery. They will ask the hard questions to not only reveal more truths and clarity, but also to make spiritual sense. They hope by offering this resource where science meets spirituality that you too can finally put your skepticism to rest once and for all. So join them as they go beyond the veil.